Welcome to Shorties, a short true crime story. Hey, best friend. Hi, bestie. Um, I've never been so involved and so invested emotionally in a crime that we've covered so far. Yeah. Um, I spent all of yesterday crying. I know you've spent like days working on this and yeah you said it made you so emotional yeah yesterday was tough (laughs) I could not stop crying and I remember I was like I really wanted to record yesterday but I couldn't even read paragraphs without sobbing I'm like I can't do this I think I'm here to call the cops on me (laughs) she can't be trusted to take care of herself so now I'm feeling stronger and I'm ready to tell this devastating story to you I love that if you were emotional at like a sad story, you're like, people are going to call the cops. Well, I mean, back in the day, you know, if a woman cried too much, she went to the loony bin. So you never know. America's a wild place right now. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know who's listening. I don't know. I don't know. Anyways, I'm giddy. I had ribs for a late lunch, so I'm kind of riding that high (laughs) still. Coleslaw and ribs, so things are fun. Okay, so I want to start off by saying that um, I got a ton of this information, virtually all of it, from this very, very, very well done docuseries on Hulu, and it is called Wild Crime. I feel like it was the only source that really did any of this any justice. Um, The rest, it was, the rest, like, the articles were so straightforward, didn't include any emotional or just, like, the... I guess I'll just look into the story. You'll understand what I mean yeah. when I get into yeah. it. But I, all I'm trying to say is Wild Crime did this story justice. And I apologize if it is kind of, uh, if I go back and forth, back and forth all over the place, I'll try to make it as clear as possible at all times. So it doesn't. Is it like very detail? It's very detail oriented. Um, there's a lot I didn't want to leave out. And there would be like a discovery you know, years later sure, and things okay. like that. So the timeline is, All it's not li- linear. Like yeah. I would have liked it to be yeah. <laughs> as crime often isn't. So what is the story? You Deep haven't breath. even told me the name of it. it. It's because I don't want to say it's the story of this dude. It's ultimately, it's, it's the story of Tony Bertolet. And, and that I don't want to give, I can't, there's like surprises. So I don't want to say the other names. <laughs> oh, okay. Sure. So here we go. Is it like a famous person? No. Oh. No one's famous. Well then, no. It's it's more like it's a twist. Oh, okay. Sorry. Come on, girl. Sorry, 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 sorry. <laughs> if I don't include it, it's on it's on purpose. Tony Bertolet was one of a kind. She was born on January tenth, nineteen sixty two, in Jacksonville, Mississippi, which makes her a Capricorn. Mm-hmm. According to her father, she was good at everything that she tried. Whether it be the piano, sports, school, everything came easy to her. If she decided she wanted to be good at it. She just was. Well, she's a Capricorn. She's a Capricorn. She's a freak so, of nature. Incredible, yeah. like, just work ethic. Talented at whatever talented, they do. Talented, smart. Yeah. Uh, her dream was to be a doctor, and she pursued a career in ophthalmology because she thought that this would be a field where she could still be in the medical field but still have time to dedicate to having a husband and kids, and that was, like, number one to her. She really wanted to be a wife. She really wanted to be a mom. She got married to, uh, she got married very young to this man that she met in medical school, but unfortunately the marriage ended in divorce and Tony's family said that she never seemed to recover from the divorce. She felt a ton of shame around giving up 
she felt like this was like her first big life failure. Yeah. She kept herself busy by opening up a practice in Jackson and Vicksburg, Mississippi. She was active in her church and she sang in the choir. Um, she just tried to make her life as full as possible without a man. Tony didn't like the men that she was meeting in Mississippi, and she felt this looming pressure to get remarried. She was getting older, and in her head, she had wasted her, you know, youthful years with a man that, you know, obviously they got divorced, and she felt like th that was the time when she was supposed to be pregnant and have a baby, and now she's late 30s, and in her head, the clock is ticking. Sure. And, and kids were like number one for her. So she needed to meet her person as soon as possible. And she felt the way to do this would be to sign up for a Christian dating site. Okay. And she quickly met a man named Harold Henthorne. Every source I found said that he was also born on January 10th, 1962, which makes him Tony's birthday twin. And I don't know why I didn't believe it. Like when I Googled the source and, or I would look up an article, it'd say January 10th. And I'm like, no, 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 no. That's Tony's birthday. It can't be your birthday too. <laughs> and I would look up and I ultimately got to like 11 different sources that confirm he has the same <laughs> birthday, but they're so different that I'm like, no, no, no. There's yeah. no way. Harold said all of the right things. He seemed successful and charming and he also wanted kids right away. According to his dating profile, he wanted romance and eternal love. He wanted to find a Christian woman to share his life with. His profile said his business was as an independent fundraiser for nonprofits, specifically for hospitals and churches. As a successful woman herself, Tony was impressed by the livelihood that he had built for himself. Harold flew out to meet Tony for the first time on New Year's Eve. By the end of the weekend, they were engaged. Tony's sister-in-law said that the couple had only seen each other five or six times total before tying the knot. Oh, no, no. Yes, no, no, no. I think in their heads, they're like, we're getting old. We got to just do this. You're a Christian. I'm a Christian. Let's do this thing. <laughs> we check all the boxes. boxes. Let's, let's do it. Let's make some babies, Harold. <laughs> First impressions were Harold's thing. He went all out to impress and win over anyone that he met. And Harold liked to make it very clear that he was successful and he made himself a fortune. Tony's family described Harold as exuberant in his mannerisms. He seemed excited and high energy. He talked loud and fast, and he was described by everyone as a used car salesman. Oh, <laughs> sounds great. Oh, I hate that. If anyone describes you as that... You have some work to do. That's an insult. Like they're, they're saying is. you suck and you're obnoxious, but they're disguising it as something else. Yeah. My favorite line was from Tony's brother. He said, Harold is great because Harold tells you how great he is. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, this sounds like every dude I've ever dated. <laughs> Come on. <laughs> I'm glad you said it. I, I, I almost know. said it. <laughs> Everyone's thinking it. <laughs> Tony's family didn't exactly take to Harold. Um, based off what they just said <laughs> yeah. but they remained optimistic because they just wanted her to be happy and to be loved and he seemed to be doing that there's footage from tony and harold's wedding and tony's father is giving a speech at one point he says harold does and says all the right things that a father-in-law looks for he's a great salesman oh 
uh, and then everyone laughs. <laughs> well, yeah, because what else are you going to do? Oh, silly. That's so awkward. Silly man. Silly Mr. Bertolet. <laughs> yeah, but like, and also the pause, because it was like, Harold does and says all the right things. Pause. That a father-in-law looks for. Like, he knew he had to save it with something oh, that, God. like, looked good. Yeah. <laughs> Two years after the wedding, Harold and Tony moved to Colorado. Apparently... Uh, Harold had always wanted to move there, but Colorado was far from her successful practice, her church, and all of her family. But as a Christian woman, she felt her husband had the authority and she wanted to make him happy. So she sells her practice, says goodbye to her friends and family, and packs her bags and moves to Colorado. He never has mentioned that he wants to live there. But after the wedding, he's like, I've always wanted to. Now we must go to Denver. Wow. Having kids was a huge priority of theirs. And when Tony was in her mid 40s, she gets pregnant with their daughter, Haley. So they're married. They have the money from selling Tony's practice. They're pregnant with their first baby. And Harold is a successful businessman bringing in tons and tons of money. From the outside, it looked like the Henthorns had the perfect life. But of course, that's never the case or not ever. <laughs> Wait, things aren't what they seem. Wait, what? Your story's not over now? <laughs> the end. <laughs> there was a noticeable shift after they moved to Colorado. Harold began to control Tony's communication with her family. Oh, no. If you wanted to talk to one of them, you had to talk to both of them. And obviously, that's not Tony's doing. That's Harold. So if people are calling Tony, Harold's like, you're talking to us now. He needed to control every situation that he was in and if he couldn't, he would get angry or he would just cut that person out of their lives. So you had to play by his rules, rules or, or no ones. Or, I mean. <laughs> do you know the rules? Yeah. I, know. I, I, do know. I love that. So you, do you know the rules? Because I don't know. That is how I live my life. What are the rules? Someone tell me. No, what I meant to say was if you had to play by his rules or get out. I think we're both delirious. That's so so funny. (laughs) Nothing makes sense anymore. Harold told Tony that she had to quit singing in the church choir because it was taking away from their marriage. Oh my God. (laughs) Yeah. So just her one hobby. She works her butt off as a eye surgeon and then she decompresses with some singing (laughs) and it's getting in the way of their marriage. After Tony gave birth to Haley, It was almost as if she became the odd man out. Her family described her as like third wheeling it with her daughter and her husband. Oh, (laughs) Harold had been so obsessed with the idea of having children that it almost seemed as if he just didn't have a use for Tony now that she had given him a daughter. Ew. And it's so gross because you see the, the video footage, their home videos. You can tell that he is thrilled to have something that's just like a smaller version of him. And he's like teaching her his little mannerisms and he like will never let Tony hold Haley. He's always the one holding. He's always being very engaging. And then she's in the back as if she's like a spirit or like a ghost. And she's just vacant face. Just oh, that's terrible. Not interacting. It's it's very haunting when you see everything playing back. All of the signs were like very clearly there. Mm -hmm. This woman was once successful and confident, always smiling But under Harold's control, she seemed to lose herself. Their neighbors reported that they never once saw her smile and that her face, it just always looked empty. 
and she was like if you see photos she's just the most lively person like you can hear i don't even know what her laugh sounds like and i know what her laugh sounds like yeah. based off of her eyes yeah. and her smile yeah and then just seeing a woman disappear yeah just vacate her body it's very disturbing tony and harold henthorne were about to celebrate their 12th wedding anniversary every single year harold liked to surprise his wife with a little anniversary getaway and every year harold would call up his best friend lee hedick to ask if he and his wife would mind watching their daughter Haley while they were away the answer was always yes this year they were headed to rocky national park harold called in to tony's work and requested that her coworker Tammy clear her schedule for the weekend. He said, I really want to surprise her with this trip. And Tammy said, sure, I'll take care of it for you. Harold showed up to Tony's work and pretended to be a patient. And he went into one of the exam rooms. One of her coworkers filmed the surprise on her phone. Tony looked <laughs> bewildered, uh, a lot more bewildered than happy and thrilled. She did not seem like she wanted that surprise. And the coworkers, even looking back on the footage, it was kind of like, help me. Don't like, don't let me go with him. Oh my God. With her husband? With her husband. You can see it. And I will, we'll post it on the Instagram. The way that he's like so thrilled to be surprising her. And she, her body language, her shoulders are up to her ears. She's just like forcing a smile. She did not want to go on this trip with her husband. Harold had packed Tony an overnight bag for her and said it was time to go. They went straight from her work to Estes Park. No man is ever packing one of my bags. I was going to say, have you lost your mind? I would be furious. <laughs> I would be furious if you tried to pack a bag for me. There is no way. Can you imagine Brett like trying to gather all of the things that oh, you would need? And he no. knows you very, very well. Oh, he knows me so well. And he, I know he would get it wrong. Or he'd pick things that he's like, well, I think you'd look good in this with like other stuff that makes no sense. The anxiety, <laughs> like it would be like really nice heels with like joggers and sweats. You know, and you're like, what the he, he wouldn't ever do it. He knows better that he knows me so well that he knows not to do That's it. That's why he chose you or you chose yeah. him. I mean, yeah. vice versa. So they go straight from the surprise. She's working. She doesn't know this is coming. Next thing she knows, she has a bag packed and he's like, get your butt in the car. We're going now. That all of that would just add. I'm spontaneous, but that that makes my butt sweat. Not like that. <laughs> I don't like any no, of that. No, because no. that's a weird controlling. Exactly. I, I can't even give you the opportunity to go. Like he, it's not like he surprised her. He could have just said, "Now we're going to go home and pack a bag. This totally. is the weather you need to pack for." And we're only going for a couple of nights. It's but not going to be a long packing experience. Yeah, the fact that he's not giving her an opportunity to say goodbye to her daughter before they go on a trip I is know, a huge thing. I know. And then the, it's I, have all a, I have a problem with all of it. Oh, you're going to have a, a bigger problem soon, honey. I believe you. <laughs> the couple stayed at the beautiful Stanley Hotel, which is where The Shining was filmed. Oh, I want to go there I so I want to go there so bad. I want to go there so, so bad. I've always wanted. Mm -hmm. we'll I think it. it'd be so fun. We'll do it. Don't you worry. We should go there and like record an episode. Ooh, I like that. Yeah. In like, oh, I, I was going to say like about the twins, but the twins are a figment of. Yeah, um, they're not real. So <laughs> the What's the Stephen King's imagination? <laughs> yeah, we could do it. It'd That'd be, be really fun. cool. I love that. On Saturday, September 29th, 2012, Harold and Tony had breakfast, then picked up a couple sandwiches before going on a hike. They decided on Deer Mountain. Well, Harold decided on Deer Mountain, which is approximately three miles up to the peak. They had left around 2 p.m., which is not really recommended just because the sun sets at 6. Yeah. And this is a very, very, it's a very advanced hike. 
Oh, I hate, I hate this even more. <laughs> I'm gonna post photos of this. It is grueling. Ugh. And on top of this, Tony had had two knee surgeries in the past, still suffered from severe knee pain. Harold had a bad back. They're in their 50s. Like, there's no way they're moving quickly. Yeah. At 5.55 p.m., Harold called 911 and stated, My wife has fallen from a rock ledge on the north summit of Deer Mountain. She's in real critical condition. She's had a bad fall, 30 to 40 feet. I need an Alpine Mountain Rescue team immediately. What a cliche. Uh, what's his name? Herman? <laughs> she might as well be. <laughs> Harold. Harold. Sorry, Herman. Oh, it is. <laughs> Truly. Uh, yeah. 911 dispatch let Harold know that rangers were headed their way. During his call with 911, he repeatedly hangs up on them and then would call right back and explain that his cell battery was dying. Harold requested that a helicopter come in because there was no way that rangers would be able to get there in anything less than a couple of hours. It's now dark. This is a beyond hard place to get to. So he requests this helicopter. They say they can't do it because of terrain. Mark Pita had taken the role of incident commander and he, you know, let Harold know they couldn't land a helicopter there. The terrain was steep and heavily wooded. The elevation of the summit was over 10,000 feet. It's already dark. There's no way they're going to have to go by foot. Mark Faraday was the ranger in charge of locating Tony. He got to the beginning of Deer Ridge Trailhead at 6.15 p.m. And he knew it was vital to get to the Henthorns as quickly as possible. Harold had stated that they were located between two large outcrops at about 9,800 feet. He was very specific about their exact location. And while this was helpful, this was still a very difficult place to get to. Mark Faraday had never even been to that area of the park before. And he could barely see because it's completely dark. There's no lights. He has a flashlight. Sure. He had been hiking through the dense forest when he heard radio traffic between Harold and the 911 dispatcher. He said that he had been performing CPR while he waited for assistance. There was something about the way Harold was talking to the dispatcher where Mark just had this gut instinct that this was going to end in a fatality, but he still marched ahead as fast as possible. He just could tell this was a lost cause. Mark was able to find the location when the moon came out and lit up the silhouette of the ridge. It's the only reason he was able to find them. Wow. He saw the two large outcrops and and he made his way to the middle like Harold told him to. As Mark approached the area, he used his whistle as a signal. Luckily, Harold had a whistle on him as well and used it to respond. It was now 8 p.m., Mark noticed that Harold ran over to Tony when he saw that Mark was approaching. He suddenly began to perform CPR. So he wasn't wasn't even near even her. Near her. Oh. wasn't even near her. And he then all of a sudden sees this ranger what walking an idiot. up. Oh, he's as dumb as dumb gets. Mark saw that Tony was on her back and her eyes were partially open. Her head was wrapped, and it was obvious that she had a very serious head wound. It was clear that Harold had dragged her body approximately eight feet because there was a pool of blood in the dirt and then a trail of blood leading up to where her body was located. Mark checked for a pulse and quickly realized that she had already passed. He looked up at Harold and said, I'm sorry, but she's gone. And Harold responded, I think so too. Mm. Yeah, I think so too. (laughs) I would agree with that. Yeah, true dude. Harold agreed to hike back to get some rest while rangers stayed behind with Tony's body. 
The next morning on September 30th, the lead field investigator, Paul Larson, arrived on the scene. Even though the fatality seemed like a tragic accident, a full investigation still had to take place. The first step was to document the scene. Paul first noticed a tree that had branches broken and knocked off, so he made note that Tony's body had most likely impacted as she fell to the ground below. They ended up calling it the impact tree. It didn't take long for Paul to see that things were not adding up. First, this was an insane place for the average hiker to venture off to. The train is incredibly steep and rocky. And if you recall, Ranger Mark Faraday had never even been to that area before, and he worked at that park. That's crazy. He literally works at Rocky Mountain National Park, and even them are they're even there. They're like, no, we don't go there. Yeah. It's like the most extreme of the most extreme. It's like when there's like a movie about like a plane crash in the middle of nowhere and it's like, oh, they're going to die. Yeah. That's where this was. Okay. They, they, Harold and Tony decided to go there or well, Harold, Harold decided, decided to, to go, go there. there. Exactly. Also, Harold had said that Tony fell 30 to 40 feet. The reality that's was really far. That's really high. That's, you know, the, yeah, that's, that's a, that's a high fall. But the reality was she had fallen 128 feet. Oh my God. Which is, I how mean, would you, how, what kind of discrepancy is that? Is this a lie? Oh, well, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's I'm called like, this a, is not adding it's up. called a lie. <laughs> <laughs> Paul saw an untied hiking boot, which he found peculiar because shoes do not like generally untie themselves during the course of a fall. He also found it strange that both her backpack and camera were found very close to her body, strategically placed. And if you recall, her body had been dragged eight feet to that location. So it was if he dragged her body and then also moved the backpack. Yeah, like made sure to go back and grab it. Everything's right here. Yeah. Paul assumed that both of those belongings uh, would have been closer to the tree that she had hit on the way down or just like about anywhere else during the duration of her 128 foot fall. Yeah, that doesn't make any sense. So Paul knew that there had to be some significance with the camera specifically and why it was found so close to her body. So he bagged it up and he brought it to Ranger Mark Faraday. Meanwhile, while they're on the mountain, investigators were going through Harold's car, taking inventory. A ranger found a map of the park with Deer Ridge Trail highlighted. Harold had written the word hike inside the highlighted area. Next to the word hike was an X drawn in pen. Very close to the X drawn in pen was an X drawn in highlighter. What? Guess where Tony died. (gasps) The map was seized as evidence immediately. It became very clear that this case was not a straightforward accident and the investigation was turned over to the investigative services branch. ISB specializes in very complicated felony crimes, and if certain kind of crimes take place in a national park, they immediately become federal offenses. Oh, so it's I didn't like a know big, that. Big deal. You you don't want to die or kill anyone in a yeah. national park. Yeah, these ISB agents have to be skilled at everything. The land and crimes that they have to cover range from you know human to wildlife crimes to human on human tragic accidents, and they're covering millions of acres. Yeah. So these badasses are covering insanely large areas of land, much of which is rocky, steep, and difficult to get to. Mark Faraday called up Beth Schott, a special agent with ISB, and when he presented the facts and the evidence that he had gathered so far, she knew that they had a case. According to Beth Schott, 
ISB agents are few and far between. So she was literally the only ISB agent in the office. This this Damn. case was on her. Wow. And she's a badass. Mark went to visit Harold at the home that he now shared with just his daughter, Haley. They live back in, in Denver. He brought the memory card that was found in Tony's camera. When Mark showed Harold the photos on the camera, he just, he seemed upset and he kept repeating, that's my wife, Mark, that's my wife. And he'd always call her my bride, which really spooks me out. He'd be like, that's my bride, Mark. (laughs) Then they went over, which I'm sure I think was really sweet if the guy was nice, but (laughs) but Harold sucks. (laughs) They then went over the details from the day of the fall. Harold told Mark that Tony was walking very quickly to the edge of the cliff but he wasn't paying attention because he was preoccupied by a text that he had just gotten. The text stated that his daughter Haley had just won her big soccer game. Mark asked to see the text. He sees the phone and notices that the text was received at 5.54 p.m. Harold had called 911 at 5.55 p.m. to report that his wife had fallen. He had said previously a few times that he had hiked down the cliff to her body before calling 911. He had also said that took him 45 minutes to get down to her. So if that's the truth, then Tony had to have fallen a little after 5 p.m., not 5.54 like he said. Yeah. So now we know what time he had received that text, as well as what time he called 911. And surprise, they don't match up to his story. What? I know, it's a shocker. A real twist, if you will. (laughs) And this makes you think, was he waiting to make that call as it was getting dark, guaranteeing that would take the rescue team longer to find them? Was he waiting for Tony to die before making the call? Or was it just an honest mistake due to panic and fear? Uh, I had to throw that in there. I, <laughs> I, I, have, that of the doubt. I have some <laughs> guesses. Same girl, same. After Har- <laughs> same girl who knows. That's the person that wrote this. <laughs> After Harold showed Mark the text message, he brought out the suspicious map that the ranger had found inside of his car. Mark pointed to the highlighted X that was drawn on the map and asked Harold, what about this? For the first time since meeting him, Harold was speechless. He asked Harold, why was an X drawn disturbingly close to where Tony fell? Why were they even there in the first place? This was a beyond advanced hike. The trails weren't cleared. There was no reason they should have gone off the path to the overlook. It was clear to the rangers and investigators that this location had to have been scouted prior to his hike. And Harold did not have an explanation for this. Surprise, surprise. Surprise. It was very evident to Mark that he was not going to get any answers and that Harold wanted him to get the hell out of his home. So Harold never picked up another one of Mark's calls after that day. Before leaving, Harold had told Ranger Faraday that Tony had one insurance policy on her. Insurance. <laughs> I didn't even notice it. Dancy, wancy, plancy. <laughs> God. Had just one insurance policy on her for a million dollars. I don't know why that was. So I know. I know. Insurance policy. <laughs> Investigators, shockingly, didn't trust that he was telling the truth. They said, we never trust what the husband says. <laughs> that was a quote. <laughs> Insurance fraud investigator Steve Jensen took a look and instantly saw all of the red flags. He found four different insurance companies that had issued policies to Herald. There was a 1.5 million policy in 2001, which is approximately a year after they got married. 
another 1.5 million in 2005, which I believe was right after Haley's birth. There was another 1.5 million in 2008. In total, investigators discovered that he would be making $4.7 million if his wife, Tony, died. Wow. As someone who, like, you know, is a Virgo who plans and Mm. thinks the worst of every situation, Mm -hmm. I've looked into getting insurance policies for, like... Oh, yeah. I've I've had a couple for myself for a long time, but... I thought that was only something you did when you wanted to kill somebody. I didn't know this was, like, a legitimate business. (laughs) No, it's a very legitimate thing. It's It's, like, if you, you know, I've looked into getting one for Brett because... Well, he should come up with that on his own. <laughs> we don't need any evidence if something goes bad. No, it's just like when you have kids, like oh, he, he just earns more than me. And so like when we have a family, it would be really useful. F- like if he passed away to have some money <laughs> to have some money to yeah. support our family. Yeah. So that's like what I've looked into because the younger you are, the cheaper it is to get. Of course. But the older you are, the more expensive it is because you're more likely to die. Mm-hmm. And so f- the fact that she's in her 40s yes. and he's getting multiple policies on her for that much money, mm-hmm. it's insane. Oh, it's that's that, so expensive. It's so much money. ISB took a closer look at the SD card in Tony's camera. One of the last photos prior to her death shows Harold in a white t-shirt standing at the edge of a cliff, gripping the tree that was right next to him. What was weird was the fact that Harold had his photo taken in that exact same spot 15 minutes later, but he was now wearing a blue denim shirt. There were multiple photos of Harold in that specific pose in that specific spot, some that had been deleted and had been recovered, some that had remained in the fo- in the camera. And we'll post some of those uh, pictures on the Instagram. Uh, it shows that he has a death grip on the tree next to him, but he insists on getting multiple photos of himself spaced out in time. And this is the exact same spot where Tony would eventually fall and die. There's a photo of Tony and Harold from where they stopped to eat lunch that day. The view is absolutely gorgeous, and you could argue that there was no reason for them to hike down to the spot where Tony fell. And when Harold was questioned about this, Harold said that Tony spotted turkeys and they wanted to go down to investigate. What wild, go investigate wild turkeys? (laughs) I gotta know, hun. (laughs) Stay away. One would think. Mark Faraday was shocked by this because turkeys don't live in that environment. Uh, They're incredibly high up and they're on rocky terrain. And when he questioned Harold about this, uh, Harold backtracked and said, well, I don't know about turkeys, but definitely deer. Two totally different. One's a bird, man. (laughs) (laughs) I know this guy's a this guy's a mess. So Mark met this statement with silence, and Harold could see that the questions were brewing in Mark's brain. So he tries to quickly recover with, "Okay, look, man, we actually went down there for some romantic time." And like I read that, I'm like, spontaneity is great. But I wouldn't think that you would need to climb down a 60 degree boulder field to make it happen. No. And I was like, with a knee injury and a bad back, you guys yeah. are in your 50s. I know fun doesn't stop in your 50s, yeah. but come on. It's no. not realistic. You don't need, you could just do it right there on the trail. No one's around. No one wants to be there. Yeah. <laughs> You're the only one that wants to be there. ISB agent Best Shot believed that there is no reason to go down there other than to push someone off of the edge. She also believes that Harold insisted on having his photo taken multiple times at the edge of the cliff to lure her to that spot. The autopsy report showed that she had tons of lacerations due to falling 128 feet and tumbling down the cliff, as well as a gruesome tearing injury on her scalp. It looked as if she had been partially scalped. 
Agent Schott was shocked by the size of the injury to her head and how profusely she had been bleeding. And no one could believe that he never mentioned this massive head wound when he was on the phone with 911. I, I was just going to say, I don't remember him saying that. Not at one point. He said that she fell 30 to 40 feet and she was unconscious. That was it. Nothing about his story or behavior is adding up. And the investigators knew that they had to look into Harold Henthorne's past and find the truth of what really happened that day. They knew that they had to get a hold of Harold's cell phone records. If you recall, Harold had mentioned that his phone was dying during the initial 911 call that night. And he would proceed to hang up on the dispatch and then call back. Because his battery was dying. Yeah. Cell phone records show that Harold was in fact making calls between his hangups with 911. Those calls were to Tony's brother, Barry. Barry is a surgeon and Harold was giving him Tony's pulse and respirations. He mentioned that she was in critical condition, but never mentioned the massive head wound that she was bleeding profusely from. He only said that she had taken a fall and was unconscious. Harold had said multiple times to the 911 dispatcher that he had been performing CPR the entire time that he waited for help, but Tony's lipstick was perfectly intact. CPR is a very messy process and her lipstick would have been smeared all over her face, but according to the images, she w- her lipstick was untouched. It's also a really laborious process thing to do. Mm-hmm. So if you're talking like it took hours yeah because he called at six they arrived at eight so that's two hours of two hours of constant so-called cpr i mean he would be like collapsed himself at that point that it's exactly so intensive rangers and agent shot saw evidence of a fire being built close to where her body was harold explained that he had built this as a signal fire but this fire couldn't have signaled anyone I like how that was kind of like an insult that the agent threw in. Like, he's such a bad fire starter. <laughs> like, this wouldn't have done anything. <laughs> Everyone knows starting a fire from scratch is very difficult and time-consuming, insinuating he was prioritizing his warmth over performing potentially life-saving measures on his wounded wife. Mm-hmm. Harold was texting people and gathering wood to build a fire while he was supposed to be performing CPR on Tony. Harold sent and received 98 texts that night. What? He texted his friend Lee Hedick at 10 p.m. saying that Tony had fallen and that she was in critical condition and to please pray. Seconds later, another text came through saying, my bride is gone. Friends and family noticed that Harold seemed very together in the days following Tony's sudden death. He didn't cry. He didn't talk about Tony. He didn't show signs that he'd been crying. He was calm, cool, collected. His behavior being the polar opposite of what you'd expect from a grieving husband is what set everyone off. It became clear that something was not right and he most likely had something to do with her death. Over the next 36 hours, Harold planned the entire service. Every single detail, he organized every little Well, he's a control freak, so of course. He organized like the seating assignments, who was going to sit next to who, which I didn't know was a thing in funerals. I didn't know that either. He organized the flowers. Um, He got a video montage together of Tony's life. He insisted that Tony had always wanted to be cremated, yet her family had never heard her express such a thing. And it's like, that is red flag number what, like 85 at this point? A man all of a sudden saying, oh, she's always wanted to be cremated. Yeah. So they can't take a look at the body. 
I don't say this in a shaming way of her. I'm just saying this as like a mm-hmm. something to everybody to keep in mind. If you have a child, it is your responsibility to set things up for them, 100%. set things up for yourself. I mean, I get that her, her child was so young that she wasn't involved in any of this, but let's just say for argument's sake, she's got a child who's like over 18. Yep. You don't want to put anyone in a position or like not even a child, just like your partner. Let's say he didn't, he wasn't involved in this. Mm -hmm. Make plans for yourself. State clearly in a will what you want to happen with your remains. Do you want to donate your organs? Do you want your, do you want to be cremated? Do you want like what it. Be your own advocate is what you're saying. Just make those decisions easier on the people that you leave behind. And especially for something like this, if, if someone doesn't want to be cremated, Then it's a big, big issue when suddenly your husband's pushing for it to happen. Exactly. And I feel like with someone like him, if she were to have attempted to voice that or attempted to put that in writing, it was made very clear throughout my research. He didn't allow her to do anything that she wanted. Like she had no say in anything. So I don't know if it was a scare tactic, but I understand what you're saying. It's like before getting married, before entering into something, you have to stand up for yourself. Yeah. And it's also, (laughs) if you have that in writing, if you've had an attorney drop a will or, Mm -hmm. you know, what you want done with yourself after you've passed and then something like this happened, she, her loved ones have grounds for filing a lawsuit against him. Like there's a lot of things that you can do if you have something like that in legal writing. Yeah, absolutely. It's a great point. Tony's service was the ultimate opportunity for Harold to control the narrative. His wife had just died 36 hours before. He had sat by her dead body in the dark, in the cold, in the middle of the mountains after a sudden and brutal fall, yet he was feeling up to putting together an extensive video montage. One of the very first calls that he made the morning after her death was to a photographer. She was expecting to receive a bunch of random photos of Tony from throughout her life, like just given given a box basically and pick out your favorites type thing. But that was not the case. Uh, Harold sent over 70 very thoughtfully selected images. As friends and family watched this very long video during the service, they noticed that there wasn't a single photo that did not have Harold in it. It was as if her life had begun when she met him, and this deeply, understandably, upset her friends and family. Oh, that's some bullshit. As someone who has put together many video montages for funerals of people that I know who have passed away, yeah. that's not how you do it. That's not how you be doing things. <laughs> no. You include everyone. I was about to say, you know, as someone that's made a lot of birthday montages for their boyfriends, <laughs> <laughs> I know how to do things, and it's not all about you. Yeah. Newsflash. Yeah. It had become very clear and it was when I was looking at the interviews from her loved ones and you know her, her families, her friends, but they were watching this video and they said that there was this like feeling that passed through the church sure. of just like- Like a tangible feeling. It was this feeling of he has been planning this for a very long time. Yeah. This is not on three days notice no. or whatever. <laughs> Two and a half days. Multiple people reported that he did not appear to be mourning at the service. He didn't shed a tear or say a single nice thing about his wife. Instead, he detached and he verbalized that he was annoyed that an investigation was going on. He was heard saying, why did Tony have to go get herself killed on federal land at her service? Oh my God. Anonymous phone calls and letters started being sent to the Larimer County Sheriff's Department the FBI, news stations, all of the letters had the same theme. People were not buying Harold's story. 
a total of 17 anonymous letters were sent out. Many of those letters disclosed very shocking information. Tony was not Harold's first wife to die. James Wilkerson, the Larimer County coroner, received a letter that said, to whom it may concern, Mr. Henthorne lost his first wife about 17 years ago after a suspicious accident in a remote location. Sadly, there are many similarities in these two cases. It was anonymous. James had done approximately 8,000 cases and he had never received a letter or phone call like this before. It took him three months to file the death certificate because the investigative details didn't feel right to him. He ultimately labeled Tony's death as undetermined. Homicide cannot be entirely excluded. He had never in his entire career written a comment like that before. Everyone knew that they had to look into Lynn Henthorne's death. The two deaths had multiple elements in common, 12 years specifically into the marriage, remote locations, very unusual circumstances. Harold met his first wife, Lynn Rochelle, while he was going to college in Virginia. Lynn was a social worker, and everyone described her as a very religious, kind, and loving human being. No one in Lynn's family felt like they really knew him, even as their wedding was approaching. What they did know was just surface level. Her siblings described him as the outgoing salesman type. Oh, again... Lynn's best friend said Harold was always laughing, always smiling, and he had high energy all of the time. He was in a constant state of hosting. I hate that. I hate that. I hate so that. Much. Me too. It's like, it's like chill out. And not in his own house. He would go to other people's houses and then like feel the need to host so that all of the attention was on him. I hate that. <laughs> <laughs> Anna's never dated anyone like that. Yeah, this doesn't feel personal. Her family was very alarmed when they discovered that Harold was very much in charge when it came to the wedding planning. He had a binder for everything, one for the photographer, one for the reception, one for the flowers. It was excessive. And in my head, I was reminded of uh, when Monica was planning her wedding and friends. I was going to say, this does seem very Capricorn. Capricorns it's, are very organized. Yeah, it's very organized, but it's like not as endearing as it was with Monica. Like, no, this is just not. scary. Yeah. I think, so I think the family saw this and they're like, wait a second, like, shouldn't your fiance get a say in any of this? Like, this is her wedding too. But no, not according to Harold. Lynn and Harold got married and very quickly after, Harold insisted that they moved to Colorado. He's always wanted to live there. Oh my God. Everything appeared perfect from the outside for a while. But over time, Lynn's brother said, Lynn became quieter and Harold became louder. His controlling behavior began to show. One day when a family member of hers called to chat, Lynn asked if she could call back later when Harold got home. She was like, why? We're on the phone now and I want to catch up with you, not Harold. Lynn told her that she and Harold had decided that whenever they talk to family, they both want to be on the phone at the same time. At work, Lynn was strong and never a pushover, but in a relationship, she never pushed or questioned a thing. Harold started suffering from back problems and ultimately demanded that Lynn be there to wait on him hand and foot. He would be on his back for two weeks and Lynn would have to find a way to serve him as well as go to work full time. Around this time, she was diagnosed with rheumatoid arthritis and was in a ton of like just crippling pain. Yeah. Literally cripples you. She was prescribed medication to help her condition, but she was fearful of taking it because Harold had put a ton of pressure on her to have a child and she wasn't sure if the medication would interfere with that. 
and her family members were alarmed because she was prioritizing Harold's need for children over her health and well-being. Yeah. Her life depended on this medication. Yeah. How do you function if you're in crippling pain all the time? To Harold, a baby was number one. Yeah. On May 6th, 1995, 12 years into the marriage, Harold and Lynn went on a little nighttime drive together. They were driving through a pretty isolated area on a highway near Sedalia, Colorado. During the drive, Harold said that he noticed that the front tire felt spongy to him. He felt that they had like a flat tire, so they pull over. What a weird way to describe it. Spongy. It's good. Can you just say it was just felt flat? Yeah. Everything about him. (laughs) I don't like the texture. This is what went down according to Harold. So we know this isn't the truth. (laughs) Yeah. Harold got out of the car and retrieved the jack for the Jeep. He said that the jack wasn't working, so he goes to the back of the car once again and saw that he had two boat jacks with him. The car was propped up on this boat jack that wasn't intended for a car, clearly. So even though this is not safe whatsoever, it seemed to be doing the trick. He said he took the lug nuts off of the wheel and then handed them to Lynn. While Harold carried the flat tire and threw it into the trunk of his Jeep, Lynn had supposedly dropped a lug nut. She got on to her hands and knees and crawled underneath the car. Okay. Yeah. Specifically underneath where the car was propped up on the um, jack. The impact caused by the tire being thrown into the trunk caused the car to dislodge and fall off of the jack. Harold then heard a scream coming from the front of the car. The car had fallen off of the jack and crushed Lynn underneath. Lynn had somehow gotten trapped under the brake rotor because the other tire hadn't been put back on. And you might be wondering, how did Lynn get stuck under that rotor, a space that is incredibly small and hard to get under? (laughs) An eyewitness named Dwight DeVries stopped to help the Henthorns with that flat tire at around 9.30 p.m. Harold was standing outside of the car and Lynn was sitting inside of the car. Dwight said that Lynn had a frightened look on her face. He also said that it seemed like Harold wanted him to leave immediately. So Dwight asked Harold, if you don't want me to help you change the tire, do you want me to park close by so that I can illuminate the area for you? Harold said, no, I don't need your help. He wanted Dwight out of there. So fast forward to 2012, Douglas County Sheriff's Office called up one of the first eyewitnesses that was on the scene after Lynn had been crushed. Detective Dave Weaver called Pat Montoya out of the blue and asked her, can you think of any reason why a detective from Douglas County would want to call you and talk to you? She responded, that lady from on the mountain, I still have nightmares about that. So Pat Montoya said that they had pulled their car over when they saw a man waving a flasher around on the side of the road. He told them that he had gotten a flat tire and that his wife had gotten stuck under the car. She said that she saw Lynn's legs sticking out from underneath. She and the other people in her car rush over and gently pull Lynn out from underneath. They start performing CPR when Harold ran over and started screaming at them. Get the fuck away from her. Leave her alone. Do not touch her. He was livid that they were trying to help her. Okay, so she's stuck, st- quote, stuck, yet they just stuck under the car. These people can just get her out. Yeah, pull her out and then start performing CPR. Pat said that she saw Lynn's skin turning blue, so she and the other people she was with took their coats off to cover her. Harold kept his coat on. Well, it's cold. Yeah, it's poor Harold. 
They could hear sirens coming. Harold's face didn't show relief. It showed panic. Pat Montoya knew it was not an accident. Detective Weaver took another look at the case files and photos, and he was left with more questions and doubts. In the crime scene photos, you can see lug nuts scattered across the dirt. First of all, lug nuts are not round. The road that they had pulled over on was uneven gravel and dirt. So if Lynn had dropped the lug nuts, like Harold said, there was no way they could have possibly rolled underneath. Yeah. The car was parked on a slant, suggesting that the lug nuts would have had to roll uphill if Harold's story was true. The second question was, could the Jeep dislodge off the jack with the impact of a tire landing in the back of a car? And third, is literally any of this even possible? No. Douglas County decided that they needed to fully reconstruct the scene of the crime. They hired independent investigator Arnold Wheat to look at this case from the perspective of an accident reconstructionist. They replicated everything from the time it would have taken for Lynn to drop the lug nuts and crawl underneath to the exact position in which she was found to the impact of throwing a tire into the trunk. The car didn't budge. They over and over and over again shook the car through the tire. They did everything they could. Nothing would budge the car jack. The car would not dislodge. They concluded that this was 100% impossible. Once again, Harold was lying. Detective Weaver believed that Lynn was given a sedative and Harold placed her underneath the car and lowered the jack himself, oh. crushing and killing his wife. Oh. And on top of this, she had rheumatoid arthritis. Do you think this woman is very quickly dropping? No human would be putting themselves under something that is ultimately the largest weapon. And honestly, I, I, I was putting myself in that position and thinking, okay, the chances of him, of her deciding, oh, I'm going to crawl underneath the, the jacked up car now. Mm-hmm. For that exact moment for him to then be at the trunk violently tossing in a tire. Like if I was going to crawl underneath, I would be like, hey, I'm going to crawl under now. Like that's, Mm -hmm. I feel like that's so many people's like concern when a car is jacked up is like, if you're going to go under, you want to make sure it's on properly. Totally. She also, if this were the case, the way that the lug nuts were um, placed, she could have just bent down and reached for it. Yeah. She didn't have to put her entire body underneath the car. Investigators were curious about Harold's history with women and if any of them had had peculiar experiences with him. It turned out after the death of his first wife, Harold had dated quite a few women. Surprise, surprise. Surprise. It's like he's a womanizer or something. It's like he's a narcissist. It's like he's crazy. (laughs) It's like like he's looking for victims. (laughs) Just months after Lynn's passing, a good friend of the couple started dating Harold I hate that. I hate that. So, oh yeah, no. I was like, I was like, no offense, lady, but I judge the hell out of you. Yeah. She said that Harold became very controlling, and during an argument, he pinned her against the wall and wouldn't let her go until she admitted that she was wrong. Another woman he dated reported that this one time he forgot a pair of sunglasses somewhere, and he asked her to go get them for him. When she showed up to get them, the place was closed, so she just went to work. When Harold found out that she didn't grab these glasses, he flipped out lost his mind, showed up at her work and screamed at her and he had to be escorted out of the building. Oh my God. A woman that he dated after that said that they were driving his car to Estes Park and Harold said, you know, I could kill you and leave you here and no one would find you till springtime. Oh. She called him later that evening saying she didn't want to see him again, understandably. So she shows up at her house in the middle of the night banging on all of her doors. All of the women reported that he took a very strong interest in their finances He wanted to know how much money they made. Did they own their own home? Did they come from money? 
He had files and files on these women, pages filled with notes from the conversations he had with the women he was dating, like bullet points. Next, the name Tony was Dr. Mississippi. So was Harold Henthorne motivated solely by money? Harold had purchased life insurance months before his first wife died. The policy he purchased was for $150,000 with a writer on it that stated that if she died in a car accident, it would double the insurance to $300,000. But this was not the first insurance policy that she had. He had already gotten a policy on her before bumping it up a notch right before her death. When Lynn passed, he received over $600,000 from her death. His second wife, Tony, came from a family with a lot of money. They, her family, they weren't old money, but they were like very quickly accepted into that group because they were very like respectable people and they were hard workers and they, they made a lot of money from the oil and gas industry. Every single month, Tony received checks from her family, but she would have to hand them over to Harold who would then take them and deposit them himself. Her father found out about this and confronted her and suggested that she get a separate bank account immediately. So she does just that and she gets another phone while she's at it. And that she got that phone so that she could start talking to her friends and family without him supervising. There were does this remind you of you know who that you dated? Yes, who it does. constantly looked at your phone whenever yes. you were on it. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and it's the, 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 haha. And the funny and the irony of it is like, I wasn't doing anything shady, but he was, Yeah. <laughs> there were multiple signs pointing to the fact that she wanted to separate and divorce, but this was not an option to Harold because he didn't make his own money. He was living off of the checks that Tony received from her family. Tony's mother, Yvonne recalled a time that Tony and Harold went up to their cabin at Grand Lake. It was late one night and I believe it was Memorial day in 2011 which is a year and a half before Tony's death. Their cabin was in the middle of nowhere. It was just Tony, Harold, and Haley there. One night after Haley went to sleep, Harold insisted that they clean up outside. This was strange to Tony because it was dark and it was after 10 p.m. at night. There was a broken light that was on the dirt below the deck. And while Harold was standing on the deck, he told Tony to go down and pick up the pieces for him. So Tony is bending over this broken light when something suddenly hits her in the back of the head and neck. Harold called 911 and the medics come. Tony's story that she told the medics was that she was bent over this broken light when her husband suddenly threw a piece of wood over the deck by accident. Harold tried downplaying everything, saying it was an accident, it was no big deal. He couldn't keep his story straight on how large the piece of the wood was. He said it was a two by four at first, and then eventually it was 20 feet long. He threw a 20 foot long piece of wood, his wife's head. By mistake. By mistake. Anna. I know. It's dark. <laughs> it's late. I didn't realize you went right to where I told you to go. <laughs> Why are you there? Why are you listening to me, Tony? <laughs> Meanwhile, Tony was in the ambulance crying and saying, what really happened to me? She was brought to a hospital in Denver and the consensus was that she suffered damage to her cervical spine. She now had a fractured vertebra. A bray. Vertebrae. Vertebra. What's up, bra? What's up, vertebra? Vertebra. God, spine jokes. Um, <laughs> and numbness in her left hand, and she's a surgeon, so this was going to be incredibly detrimental to her yeah. career. And this is a horrific outcome for something that's like supposedly an accident. Yeah. Even though there was more than enough circumstantial evidence to build a case against Harold. They didn't have DNA or an eyewitness to pin um, either murder on Harold. 
And it's, it's tough because you can't differentiate when you're really looking at something between a push and a fall. There's no physical yeah. evidence of that. Yeah. The only option was to break down this man's life and the timeline of his relationship with Tony to possibly uncover motives. And like many cases like this, the first thought or the first question is, was there another woman? Agent Beth Schott got a hold of Harold's cell records and noticed that there was one particular number that he was calling and receiving calls from regularly. Harold's former sister-in-law, Grace Rochelle, she was his first wife's brother's ex-wife, which is like, there's no easy, say, no easy way of saying that, but it's the ex-wife of his first wife's brother. Gotcha. Harold was very involved in Grace's life as well as her four children's lives. His excessive involvement goes way past just being a sweet and caring uncle. It raises questions like, was Grace's lover? Were those children his? Is this why he killed Tony so that he could be with Grace? Detectives went to interview Grace Rochelle and they were direct with her about the fact that they were very suspicious about the type of relationship that they had. Grace said, I'm an open book. I will tell you everything I know. I was not involved with Harold romantically. She ended up speaking to the detectives for five hours. She opened up about the fact that she and her husband, Kevin, had split for the first time in December of 2007. And they were dealing with bankruptcy. They lost their home right before Christmas. They dealt with like foreclosure. She felt like she had lost everything and she didn't know how she was going to take care of her daughters. She didn't have any money to her name, and she was also mourning the loss of her marriage she, that she desperately wanted to make work. Harold told Grace, I help single women get back on their feet. What? Yeah. He told Grace that he felt that Kevin failed her in every possible way and that she deserved better. Grace was saying how there was like a point in time where he was like, he failed you uh, physically, emotionally, mentally, sexually. Like, and it's like, ew. how do you know this? Ew, you ew, creep. Ew, 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 Harold. Harold, I know, inserting himself where he is not wanted. Yeah. Harold saw that Grace was fearful of the financial state that she was in. And one day goes, why don't you get an insurance policy and we will make the girls the beneficiary. Grace thought this was incredibly generous and he, she felt okay accepting it because it was like in the name of her children. So it'd be like her children were benefiting from this, not her. So she felt that this was a fair gift to accept. Around this time, according to her ex-husband, Kevin, Harold actively tried to replace him in the eyes of their children. Like Harold Ew. would start taking them on vacations and like Ew. buying them lots of gifts. And the daughters are now adults. And they recalled how they always thought of him as just like the fun, goofy uncle. And he was always going on trips with them and trying to be their stand-in father. There's like dozens and dozens of photos of them, like by the Christmas tree or on vacation. And he's like holding one of the girls, has his arm around Grace. Like he looks like he's in a relationship or trying to look like, like it's he's his family. A, like it's his family. The girls look back on it and see now that he was inserting himself. He saw an opportunity, inserted himself, and ultimately treated them like the family that he wished he had had. And this is while he was with uh, Lynn, his first wife. Like they're still married and he's doing this. Fast forward to 2010, Grace and Kevin's divorce is now final and she wants to start over. She planned on moving to Texas to start a new job and Harold did not like that. He was furious. He started obsessively calling her, leaving her voicemails, trying to convince her to move to Colorado instead. 
he would just, it was, it, I listened to a bunch of the voicemails and it's like, hey, Gracie girl, like, weren't you calling me? Hey, Gracie girl, like Ew. just manic and like all of these, like these little pet names and being yeah. like, you know why it seems like you're ignoring me. Like you forgot about me. Like it seems like you've, you know, left me in the dust. It just creepy, obsessive voicemails one after another. Hate it. Hate it all. He started guilting her saying that he had been so generous financially and now she's just ungrateful. So Grace calls up his broker and said, I'm not going through with this insurance policy. She didn't want to owe him anything. Yeah. But during the interview with Grace, Agent Shot revealed that Harold never canceled this policy and her daughters were never listed as the beneficiaries. Harold Henthorne was listed as the beneficiary for a $400,000 policy and it was paid for until August of that year. So it was currently open. Wow. Still valid. Grace, Dude, how much money does, does this guy have? Because honestly, like Brett and I have looked into policies, you know, different. You can do like full life or mm -hmm. term, which is like a lot of people who have like young children, they'll do term. So it's like a 15 year policy or something like that. And it's mm -hmm. usually 500,000 or more. Mm -hmm. We looked into like getting a $700,000 policy. It was going to be like $600 a month for the whole time that you have the policy. So it is so expensive. Yeah. I don't understand how this dude has had so many policies on so many people. Like, what is he spending on these policies? Stay tuned. <laughs> this policy had been made uh, for Grace right before the death of Tony. So he didn't do this afterwards. He did this before. Harold didn't care that she had four daughters. Grace was just another paycheck. He saw that Grace was heartbroken and suffering, and he took advantage of her need. Just another one of his long cons. Yeah. Agent Schott brought United States attorneys Valeria Spencer and Sunita Hazra to the Rocky National Mountain Park. Or Rocky National. What, did I say that right? To the Rocky Mountain National Park. Yeah, to, you said it right. Oh, I did. Yeah. So that they could see the scene of the crime. It just because you can see photos and I can understand it. Like when I was seeing pictures, I'm like, oh, I could see that that's a pretty outlook. Like, yeah, that's, a, you know, a tough, a tough hike, but I can see why you'd want to go there. But when you see the video footage of it, it's so absolutely bizarre that two humans would be there. And I think that that is why they wanted the attorneys to be there present and see how far they wandered off the trail, see that it wasn't even a cleared trail that they went to. They knew that, or Agent Schott knew that she had to bring these women there to fully get the, you know, the spiel of it to present to the jury. So they start hiking Deer Mountain and Agent Schott replicates the Henthorns hike that day. She led the attorneys off the trail the way that Harold had. And they both go, wait a second, this makes like no sense at all. Valeria Spencer instantly knew that this was not right. There was no indication there would be a great view or any reason to go off trail in that particular area. Agent Shaw explained to her that Harold justified this call with wanting some sudden romantic time with his wife. None of this made sense. They're in their 50s. They have bad backs. They have bad knees. By the time they got to the lunch spot, they knew that they had a solid case and they said that they're in 100% they wanted to represent this case. First step would be to get a search warrant so that they could seize his computer and cell phone. On April 10th, 2013, agents arrive at Harold Henthorne's home. His office held every single paper that he must have signed or come across in the past 20 years. The entire office is packed with file cabinets. Wow. Thousands of files were seized. What they find during the search blows this case wide open. 
Oh my God, what did they find? There had always been a lot of mystery and questions about what Harold did for work. I was going to say, I don't understand how fundraising makes you a ton of makes money. Makes you bank, no. It's a, it's a good way to hide money, but um, tax returns showed that after he graduated from college, he had gotten a job with Chevron. He was a terrible employee. He never got any work done. And when he caught wind that he was about to get fired, he quit. At one point, he started selling diamonds and then did some fundraising work at Colorado Christian University. Once again, he was terrible at his job and quit right before getting fired. Harold said, you know what? I'm going to start my own fundraiser. The stories of major deals closing, money pouring in, it's all anyone ever heard out of his mouth. Every conversation they said was about money or his success or a deal that just closed. So if Harold was such a successful businessman running a flourishing independent fundraiser for nonprofits, why did he need to kill women for money? Harold hadn't had a job since 1992. <laughs> Tax returns showed that in 20 years, he didn't make a single dollar. For 20 years, Harold pretended to be a businessman. He went on countless business trips. He hired a nanny to take care of Haley every week. It was like every Thursday and Friday since she was born, he would go out of town for business. What? He had notepads and business cards with his company's logo on it, and none of it was real. Every element of this man's life was a lie. The attorneys and agents had to figure out a way to prove that Tony had been pushed because at the end of the day, just because you can prove this man is a liar living a fake life, you have to be able to differentiate between a fall and a push and convince the jury of this. The two U.S. attorneys on the case brought FBI agent Jonathan Grusing to the scene because they needed a fresh pair of eyes and they needed to see the crime scene through the lens of an individual that has worked tons of serial killer cases. The entire time FBI agent Grusing and the U.S. attorneys were on the mountain, he didn't say a single word. He moved in silence and took in everything around him. They made their way back down the mountain and began the drive home. Out of nowhere, Jonathan Grusing broke his silence. That man killed his wife. He shoved her off that cliff. It had been two years since Tony had died, and Harold was still living in their family home with their daughter, Haley. Everyone on the case knew that they had to act fast. This man is evil, and this man is dangerous. This man craved complete control, and after murdering two women, he was now the caretaker of a young girl. After Tony's death, he started exhibiting obsessive behavior towards Haley. They felt that they were dealing with a ticking time bomb. No one in Harold's family would give an interview, but Agent Schott was able to gather bits and pieces about Harold's childhood through his friends. Myra Whitener had been a lifelong friend and said that everyone thought that he was obnoxious, <laughs> but he was incredibly charming, so the bad stuff was overlooked. Wow. He never wanted to go home, so he spent a ton of time at friends' houses. Harold's father was abusive, he was a violent alcoholic, and he took his anger out on his son. Harold would tell Myra, I will never drink and I will never hit a woman. I'll just kill I'll them. I'll just kill him. I didn't hit him. <laughs> Harold was drawn to exceptionally loving and caring women who always came from big families. And that's all Harold ever wanted. Harold wanted to be a family man. And to get that, he had to disguise all of the ugly that was inside of him. He met these giving, warm and selfless women and he used them as props. He had to condition himself to show emotion the way a healthy human being would. And what better person to mirror than the wonderful women that were conned by him? They were a means to an end, and he murdered them in cold blood because to him, they weren't something to love and protect. They were a paycheck. He was a compulsive liar. His stories never added up or remained the same. 
FBI agent Grusing quickly labeled Harold a narcissist. He said, a narcissist has no empathy for people around him. And every even little statement has to go towards a building up of the perception or image of that person. A, a criminal like profiler came in that focuses on like before trial, basically labeling like, do they have borderline? Do they have this? Do they have that? And she said, narcissism, grandiosity, manipulative, not taking responsibility for his actions, pathological lying and low empathy. This man is a psychopath. FBI agent Grusing believed that Harold was different than most psychopaths because Harold had no interest in hurting strangers. He only wanted to hurt the people closest to him. The closer you were, the more likely he would harm you. The Bertolets, which is Tony's family, were essentially undercover for the two years that this investigation took place. They knew that they had to appear to support Harold so that they wouldn't get cut off from Haley. They were incredibly worried about her safety and knew that they had to put on this act to keep an eye on her. They knew this man killed Tony, but they kept up appearances and showed up to birthdays and vacations. And then they would call up Agent Shaw and provide any information that they could to help with the case. They played this game for almost two years. Can you imagine that? I remember reading that about um, the O.J. Simpson case mm -hmm. and Nicole's family. I mean, obviously he did it. Oh, yeah, We all know that. His, her family believes that. But there were two minor kids involved, and so they had to have a relationship with mm -hmm. him because they couldn't get custody of the kids. Mm -hmm. So in order to not get cut off, they just had to play nice with their loved one's murderer. Yeah, exactly. And accept the fact that he was raising them. And felt like they got away with murder, yeah. literally. Yeah. As time went by, Harold thought that he had gotten away with it, so he started becoming very cocky. And he mistook the Bertolet's involvement like as support and proof that he was innocent. Oh, and the Bertolet's, they just had enough. They couldn't handle it anymore. A forensic accountant was able to see that Harold was in the process of moving hundreds of thousands of dollars. So they knew like now they had more than enough evidence to arrest Harold. A surveillance team followed him around for a few days because they were waiting until he wasn't with his daughter they were worried that if they tried arresting him when he had had Haley with him, that he would turn it into a hostage situation. Harold Henthorne was arrested and transported to the U.S. Marshal's office, coincidentally on the Bertolet's, um, Tony's parents' anniversary. So they consider it now like this anniversary gift of theirs that Harold got taken in. Oh, yeah. On the way, on the way to uh, the U.S. Marshal's office, they you had to fill out a questionnaire like your name, your birthday, your occupation. And when they got to the question about his occupation, Harold pauses. He's aware that they know that he doesn't have a job. And he said, I choose not to answer that question. When they arrive at the U.S. Marshal's office, a very attractive young marshal was in charge of booking him in. And she asked him all of the same questions, name, age, occupation. This time he answered the question with, I'm a fundraiser for hospitals and churches. Oh, yeah, because it's an attractive <laughs> it's a, woman. Yeah, my potential. Well, you, you, don't, you never know how this is going to pan out. You, you really, might be able to marry her. <laughs> it's so true. FBI agent Grusing and agent Best Shot watched Harold tell this elaborate story to this young woman. Like he was like indulging like details about how much money he was making. Oh, my God. It's like even under arrest, he like needed to keep up appearances yeah. around this female. They said it was the most fascinating thing watching it happen, the switch between people that are a threat and not to be hunted versus to be hunted. Wow. He was charged with first-degree murder, and he was denied bail. He was believed to be a flight risk, so he had to spend every day in jail leading up to his trial. 
family friends, the headaches, they're the ones that were watching Haley when uh, they went off on that trip. They're really good friends of them. They ended up taking care of Haley for the 14 months and quickly saw the effects that her father's control had on her. She was very stunted and she had not matured in a normal way for someone her age. Oh, that's really sad. The attorneys knew that to build a strong case, they had to find out what he was really doing every week because the man didn't have a job. Harold was flying out, supposedly, every Thursday and Friday to go on his business trips. So finding out his whereabouts is going to be the piece of the puzzle that was missing. They took a look at his cell phone records to locate what cell tower signals were pinging off of on those days. It took Agent Grusing two weeks to put the pattern together. He would spend four hours at a time at the Panera Bread in the Aspen Grove Mall. And I was like, of all places, the atmosphere <laughs> sucks. <laughs> like, come on. His cell phone records showed that after spending four hours there, he would he would go to Estes Park. He was making the drive up north every single weekend leading up to Tony's death. Records showed that he was there eight or nine weekends in a row, pinging off of the same tower from which he made the 911 call reporting her fall. Wow. So on September 9th, he visits Estes Park again and spends the day there. The next morning on September 10th, he calls up Tony's work at Cherry Creek Eye Surgeons and tells them to block off September 28th so that he can take her to a surprise trip at Estes Park. It is believed that on September 9th, he decided on the spot where he was going to kill his wife. Harold had just found out about Tony's separate bank account when he began his trips up to Estes Park. Oh. 11 days after her death, Harold shows up to the bank with a forged signature of Tony's and he fucking cleaned out her account. Wow. Every single dollar, 11 days after his wife has died. The last step was to tie Lynn's death with Tony's death. Remote areas, Harold is the only witness. Both times he's not hurt at all. Both deaths occurred on wedding anniversaries with dinner reservations that he had made for that evening. He would be making a ton of money off of both of their deaths. There's a lot of similarities. On September 8th, 2015, the trial begins. Harold's defense knew that it would be completely impossible even attempting to explain away the inconsistencies and quirks that was Harold Henthorne. So they stuck with the, yes, he's quirky, but that doesn't make him a killer strategy. The defense attempted at painting Harold as this poor victim that lost two wives and he was heartbroken. He emphasized that you cannot differentiate between push and a fall. Thankfully, the evil and the poison that is Harold Henthorne could not be explained away. Finally, a group of people that he was not able to fool. Thanks to the dedication of Agent Beth Schott, FBI Agent Grusing, U.S. Attorneys Valeria Spencer and Sunita Hazra, a strong enough case was built to hold Harold Henthorne accountable for the atrocities that he had committed. On September 18th, 2015, the jury found Harold Henthorne guilty. He was sentenced to life in prison. Tony's family cried in the courtroom. It was an incredibly emotional moment, knowing that years later they had gotten justice for their sweet Tony, who deserved the absolute world. I don't know, it gets so emotional. <laughs> and there was justice for Lynn because without her case, he wouldn't he would have been able to get away with Tony's murder. Lynn's brother Kevin said, Lynn was a lover. My sister was a lover, and he took advantage of that. And the world's lost a lover, and we need more of that in this world. Harold Henthorne is serving his life sentence at the Terre Haute United States Penitentiary in Indiana. 
And Haley is living with her aunts and uncles and is supposedly thriving. Aww. And that is the case of Lynn Rochelle and Tony Bertolet. Don't date narcissists, y'all. <laughs> should I do like a, uh, should I Google the signs of one so that you don't start dating one? <laughs> no, we <laughs> can't wait here for four hours. <laughs> I know. <laughs> Maybe on our um, Instagram, we can do like the last page can be like <laughs> yeah. characteristics of yeah. so that you can avoid because they are, they're very common. They're everywhere. And yeah. I know that Instagram makes fun of it and says that, you know, girls will like hate an ex and then label them a narcissist. And the st- that is true, but also statistically speaking, they're very common and I feel like there are more and more and more every day. <laughs> I think based off all the guys that you've dated, I've come to understand what a narcissist is. So mm. I don't throw that term around loosely. No. I would never call someone one that isn't one. No, 100%. Like just because they're selfish or self-centered does not make them a narcissist. No, the, there all. has to be a lack of empathy. Yeah. Um, There's gotta be, it's gotta be very specific. 100%. It's almost as if a human's not really truly in there. Yeah. Like a robot. Yep. And they mirror, they project. Yep. It's crazy. Well, that was really good. Thanks, girl. You did a really good job. I felt very passionate about it. I I cried a lot. Yeah. But I mean, you held it together until the very end. Yes, girl, I did. I know the one quote where he was just saying how his sister was a lover. Yeah. And the world needs, that's literally all the world needs. Mm -hmm. And he took her away. Yeah. That's. That got me for show. <laughs> oh, man. All right. All right. <laughs> Bye. Oh, I love you. Love you. Bye. Bye. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate, review, and subscribe wherever you enjoy listening. We owe everything to the many journalists, authors, filmmakers, psychiatrists, and psychologists whose extensive work and expertise we pulled from to share this episode with you. To view detailed source material, as well as content from today, please visit us on Instagram and TikTok at Shorty's Podcast. We really love doing this show. And if you'd like to help with the continued creation of it, you can support by donating to our Patreon, patreon.com slash Shorty's Podcast. This episode was hosted by Ashley Brumley Johnson and Ana Katarina.